All right, bradcooney.com would like to welcome in Ken Tapping, who is an astronomer of the National Research Council up in Canada. Ken, thanks for joining us, man. Oh, you're welcome. Really appreciate you coming on board. All right, man, I want to get into this because recently um, some cool news out of the astronomy world and the world of planets, the extrasolar planets that were actually able to directly image extrasolar planets. Talk a little bit about this. Well, we, we can sort of image them. I mean, we haven't got fantastic images. I mean, part of this has, has come from our ability to put accurate telescopes in space um, because here on the ground, uh, when we're looking through the atmosphere, of course, the atmosphere scatters everything. Uh, so it's very difficult to see something very faint next to something very mm. bright. Uh, but then putting the telescopes in space um, goes a long way towards making that possible. And then, of course, we can start, once we've got clean light getting into instruments, we can start doing clever things with the light, such as interferometry and so on, which is a way of filtering out um, what we're after compared with what we're, what we, you know, compared with what we're actually getting coming in from space. So it's rather awkward to do. We can't do it in all cases, but we can do it in some of the more extreme ones. And mm. so uh, um, we're actually doing things that um, I think even a decade or two ago we would have thought absolutely impossible. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's amazing how far we've come. Um, Ken, is, is, it, is it fair to say that we're able to see the, the large gas planets? We're not, we, we're not able to image the smaller rock. Um, yeah, we can. How do we get that other information? How do you guys break all that down? difficult is it to decipher um, whether or not you're looking at the same planet or, or a different planet that's you know, ro rotating around the same star? Oh, now, that depends. I mean, um, I mean look, 
looking at the data coming out of Kepler, um, Kepler at the moment thinks it's picked up, this is the uh, count to February, that it's picked up 677 planetary systems other than our own. And that contains, so and they've detected or confirmed in those systems 861 planets, which means they've got 128 systems with multiple planets. Now in the case of a simple, a single planet orbiting around a star, it's no problem. I mean, you see a dim, and then you see another dim, and then at regular intervals you see these dims. Uh, when you get multiple dimmings, you really have to observe for a long time in order mm -hmm. to determine that what you're seeing are dimmings due to multiple planets. So the only trick is to observe for a long time with very good instruments. And, of course, the Kepler satellite has very good instruments. But um, most of the planets we're seeing with Kepler are between one and one and a half times the size of Jupiter. And, of course, most planets are a lot smaller than that. I mean, we have seen one, Kepler 37b, is about the size of the moon. But um, oh, wow. generally, um, the big planets are the easiest to detect. And I think a planet like the solar system, like our solar system, might be quite a bit difficult because it's got all these little planets like the Earth and then about four gas giants as well. So deciphering that will be a challenge for somebody. Absolutely. Now, a minute ago, you mentioned about being able to determine the atmospheric makeup um, yeah. Of course, methane is something that we look for um, for the possibility of life. I mean, are we able to see any methane out of these uh, exosomes? Uh, yes, we have seen methane. We have seen methane. Um, well, I mean, basically, the way we do that is um, ages ago, people found out that if you pass uh, light through um, a, a gas, um, you get a, you get dark lines in the spectrum that identify the spectrum of the material in that gas. Now, of course, when you look at a star like the sun, you'll see both bright, a bright spectrum with dark lines, but those dark lines are all atoms because a star's atmosphere is way too hot for molecules or complicated molecules to exist. So if you're looking at a star that you know um, there's a planet orbiting it, and during the time the planet is moving in front of the star, you start seeing the signatures of molecules, uh, you know that you're looking at a planetary atmosphere. That atmosphere is attached to the planet and not to the star. So, yeah, methane is an important gas, but of course, when we look at planets like um, Jupiter and Saturn, there's a lot of methane in their atmospheres too. So what you really want is you want a small planet like the Earth, um, close to a star, with methane in its atmosphere, and that will be a signature of life. But um, obviously we don't know whether there's life on Jupiter. Mm. Now, how far away are we technolo with technology to really hone in on some of the smaller Earth, rocky-type planets around these stars that we're seeing? Oh, gosh, I think we'd be, uh, if um, a, a, a conservative estimate would be five years, probably sooner than that. That's uh, fast. That's not long. Oh, yeah, that's fast. No, that's not long, because a lot of it is refining the way we process the data we're getting from, an, from Kepler. So it's a question of just getting cleverer at processing the data and digging into the information. But instruments are going to get better. I mean, now that we're finding planets, we can start designing instruments specifically for um, homing in on planets. We're learning a lot more, for example, um, that red dwarf stars seem to be the best bet. Um, they, have, they have comparatively narrow habitable zones, but these, planet, these stars tend to last a heck of a long time. So um, 
they're much more interesting to look at from the point of view of planets. Whereas if you take a bright star like Sirius or a brighter star than that, they might have planets for a short time, but then, the, then within a few million years, these planets get fried and nothing much happens on them. Mm. Um, I'm guessing various distances these things are. I mean, how far away are, are some of these, these planets that we're able to, to see now? Uh, 20, 30 light years. A light year is about 6 million million miles. Uh, six with twelve zeros after it, um, and so we're looking twenty, thirty light years away. For some of the eclipse ones, we're looking further than that. So I think probably anything within about a hundred light years, we can deal with quite easily. Wow! Now we we talked previously in the interview about the Goldilocks parameter kind of got thrown upside down. You were talking about um, get into that a little bit more. What, what's different about what we initially thought about the Goldilocks area? Well, the simple the simple thing. I mean, what we what we said was if a planet has liquid water, then um, life as we know it could develop because you know our body chemistry relies on water to carry everything around, and the quality and the uh, the nature of water means a lot of our body chemistry can happen. Um, so therefore, we want a planet with liquid water, and so you. But then then all sorts of other things started happening. I mean, one of them is on the Earth we started finding these extremophiles, these creatures and things that can live in water that's essentially boiling. Mm. And then we're finding living creatures hanging around these black smokers at the bottom of the ocean where there's the, the no star is necessary uh, for life to be like that. So um, the first step is if you're looking at a planet... Um, with water on its surface, then not only is the brightness of the star an issue, but the nature of its atmosphere is an issue, because um, um, if you have a lot more carbon dioxide in an atmosphere or a lot more methane, then the greenhouse gases make that planet warm. So um, these planets can be way out in the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone and still have life on them, whereas if you look at a planet like Mars, which has very little greenhouse effect, um, then you um, obviously the place is frozen, and there's, mm. if there's life there, it's very rudimentary. And then, of course, you look at a planet like Venus, um, where Venus has a very thick atmosphere, rich in greenhouse gases, and of course everything fries there because it's just that so close to the sun. So you juggle the nature of the atmosphere as well as the amount of energy coming from its star, and these things together work on whether or not you're going to have liquid water. But of course, then you take a place like Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. From, yeah, this is so far from the sun that the surface is essentially frozen, but the gravitational distortions that it undergoes, this is orbit or orbits around Jupiter, uh, we think there's a liquid ocean underneath, and this, these tidal stresses, these deep deformations of shape, will also drive the sort of processes that make black smokers on the seabed. So we could probably find life on Europa as well, where solar heat is not the main issue at all. So... Um, um, the Goldilocks, the, the old definition of the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone seems to be getting a bit narrow now because life seems to be a bit more robust than that. Mm. And then, of course, a few years ago, James Lovelock came up with this Gaia hypothesis, which essentially is, to some extent, life can modify its environment to suit itself. Mm. Um, and so you have these sort of circumstances, and I think now your Goldilocks zone starts getting so big it's almost hard to realize it's anything, you know, it's not a valid definition anymore. Wow, I mean, when you when you when you look at all this, you just take a deep breath and just kind of like, 
you know, I, I'm just amazed. Um, what, um, I guess I'm asking, how much more encouraged are people in your field now that we've seen these planets and, 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 and after you just, you know, what you just told me about the Goldilocks zone is just really, you know, thrown upside down now. How much more encouraged are you guys that, that we're, that we're going to find life out there? Well, I think that, well, we're certainly encouraged. I think that, you know, most thinking people um, sort of think, well, in the universe this huge, um, you know, what is the rest of it there for if we only have life here? And if the rest of the universe is only there for astronomers, I think they should pay us a bit more. <laughs> but um, but um, we, see, we see lots of conditions out there. We see a, a, a universe that's predisposed for life. I mean, for a start, you know, at the beginning of the universe, about 14 billion years ago, um, the most common element in the universe was hydrogen. Um, it's an interesting stuff, but you can't do much with it. But you can make stars. Mm. And then stars... Um, forming from hydrogen gas, big balls of hot hydrogen, obtain energy by turning the hydrogen into other things. So after you've had a few generations of stars, you've got clouds of phosphorus, sulfur, oxygen, nitrogen, and all the elements you need to make planets and us. And then when you leave these, pla these, these gases, you know, from recycled stars orbiting in clouds in the universe, you find there's chemistry going on inside these clouds. And so you start getting quite complicated organic molecules like methane, ethyl alcohol, methyl alcohol, water, formaldehyde, hydrogen cyanide, and lots of other things, ammonia, and lots of lots of water. And these materials are actually the starting points for the chemistry of life. If you put these sort of mixtures in a big bottle and pass a thunderstorm through it, the same way as you would have done if you'd had these gases absorbed on a young planet, you end up with amino acids, the building blocks of life. And if all these processes are going on throughout the universe, essentially, it's very hard to see that the only thing that's actually made living use of them is us. It's very hard to believe. Yeah. Um, but, but, but you're right. I mean, not very long ago, um, it was doubtful that we'd ever be able to see planets orbiting other stars without going there. Mm -hmm. And now we can, and we're measuring their atmospheres and so on. So I think we're getting very close to... Um, finding life out there somewhere and i think that'd be very exciting oh very very exciting um now i'm guessing that the guys at seti who actually listen in and try to find radio signals or other civilizations they got to be really excited about this stuff because they can hone in on on certain you know solar systems that we know have planets there as opposed to you know blindly looking up there Well, two things are happening in SETI that are exciting. I mean, one is the ability to, actually three things. One of them is certainly the ability to be able to focus the search a bit more. Right. Uh, the second thing is that um, the signal processing equipment we have now is so much better than anything that Frank Drake had when he first pointed his dish at the heavens and, and, and concocted his equation. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is uh, that we're also managing to piggyback um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence on other radio astronomical observations. In other words, if you're running a radio telescope doing some observations, see a bit of the signal could be sucked out without affecting your observations, and you can run a parallel search for extra, extraterrestrial intelligence at the same time. So this is this is all tremendously exciting. 
you know, it's time to be around. Yeah, man, absolutely. And I hope it might, you know, before before I, you know, check out for good. I hope <laughs> hope we can, you know, definitely, you know, figure this well, out. Touching, well, touching some wood here. My betting is before we check out, we're gonna we're gonna know. Yeah, there's a bet. Wow, uh, that, that, that's exciting. If you check out before it's happening, come back and I'll apologize. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, all right, so where do you think we're going to be 20 years with telescopes from now? Well, um, what's happening with, with, well, two things are happening with telescopes, and one of them is we're getting to be able to make bigger and bigger mirrors and bigger and bigger telescopes. So on the optical side, uh, we're looking at... Um, um, we'll have um, telescopes with mirrors 100 feet in diameter, uh, which will collect an incredible amount wow. of light. And with modern techniques of, um, of adaptive optics, which essentially means we can correct for the distortions in the atmosphere, I think we've got to see planets orbiting other stars. And on the radio front, of course, um, the very large array at Socorro has just been extended. And so that instrument has been updated, has more capabilities than ever before. And um, there's an international effort now designing a project called the Square Kilometre Array, which is going to be 100 times more sensitive than the VLA. Wow. So we, we have the sort of instruments that are going to really be out there to pick up stuff, if it's, if it's at all there. Um, in a way, though, it was a shame the Allen Telescope Array was built down, at, down in your neck of the woods for doing SETI, among other things, it produced some absolutely wonderful observations, and then it had to be closed because of lack of operating money, which is something we seem to suffer from in our country, too. Yeah. But um, uh, even if there's some money to fire that thing up again, we've got to get some surprises from the Allen Telescope Array, too. But um, instruments are now getting better at an incredible rate. Um, the signal processing stuff that we can put on the back end to make sense of it is also advancing at a rate which defies belief. And the other thing is we're now starting to make this sort of data available to more people, so we're not the only people processing it. I mean, we've got, we've got amateur astronomers detecting extrasolar planets now. Oh, wow. Where will we be in 10 years? Yeah, that, that, that's exciting when, when, when we look at it like that because yes. there's more amateurs. And now, and now we're getting more civilian... Um, you know, spacecrafts, and we're docking with the with this the space station now with with civilian. Yeah, no, that that is amazing, isn't it? The right. space travel grows are being taken out of the hand, out of the hands of governments. Right, right. Yeah, and exciting too, because they're, oh, and, yeah. and now, now now they're talking about a possible manned Mars mission mission um, as early as 2018 is a possibility. That will be wonderful. I hope we don't lose our courage because I think we should really, really do that. Um, when we're exploring new places, I think mankind goes forward. We develop new technologies. Our whole attitude to the future changes. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we, then we would, when we start pushing out to the frontier again, we're not going to be as negative as we seem to be getting. Right. I absolutely concur with that. You know, it's a little bit mind-boggling when you think about it is, is if there is, and I think it's definitely a, a, a life out there, intelligent life, um, what are the odds, though, that that life form evolved like we have and use radio signals like we use you gotta you gotta have that to hear it yeah no that well that is that is certainly a uh, um, a puzzle 
I mean, we send, tend to sort of think in terms of life, taught, life forms uh, doing what we do. Right. Um, but a number of things in one is, for example, we don't know um, how much of the life of the civilization people actually use radio waves until people come up with something better. I mean, already we're using things like cable, TV, and fiber optics and stuff like that now, rather than squirting signals around through the air. And so it might very well be that radio is a technology that comes and goes. Um, people are looking at the possibility of interstellar laser communication, for example. Um, but we don't know how big this radio technological window is. And of course, other civilizations, for example, if they're a civilization, say, for example, super-evolved sea life, then they're not going to be into radio. Right. Be subsurface and, uh, stuff. And, and it depends on the nature of the planet, too. I mean, we're lucky. We're, we're, we had a, a, we've got a planet that's designed for radio. We've got this ionosphere that is um, gave us worldwide shortwave communication before mm -hmm. we had satellites and things. We have an atmosphere that allows us to use long-distance radio, radio communication. So there's an additional factor involved that's not just technology. I want to touch on uh, asteroids a little bit because we just had a, um, I don't know, a pretty close shave by one, and of course we had the, the meteorite that that blew up over Russia. Um, yeah. How good are we getting at, at finding these bad boys, man? Because if one of those puppies hits us, maybe we won't get to see the uh, extraterrestrial first contact. Well, the <laughs> I think I think the Russian one is a good indication of how good we are not. That's right. Um, exactly. That wasn't that big, about the size of a school bus, which is nothing by cosmic terms. Mm. And when it came into the atmosphere, it released about 500 kilotons of energy, um, so that's uh, something like 20 times Hiroshima. And what saved us was really two things. One, it came, up, it came in at a very shallow angle, so it dissipated most of that energy in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Uh, if it had been coming straight down, it would have hit the ground um, and released probably a couple of hundred kilotons worth. Wow. And that would have taken out a city. Um, and then that's uh, amazing. It, it, it's, it's just the size of a school bus and it would have wiped out a, an entire city. Yes, well, you're, you're working, you know, you're, you're moving at something like 20 miles a second or something like this. You've got a tremendous amount of kinetic energy. Oh, man. And we're basically not very good at spotting these. Um, the bigger ones, we can spot. But then the question is, what do you do about exactly. it? Exactly. Because you know, if, if you're going to start doing something, you have to start doing it years in advance. If you've got something, say, one kilometer in diameter you've got to do something about, then you've got to start that shove uh, years in advance. And with all the orbital uncertainties at the moment, we're going to have to refine our orbit calculations a heck of a lot. I mean, we're not just orbiting the sun. You're getting tugged at and pushed at by all the other planets and so on. So you could easily be taking something that was going to miss and turning it into a hit. We, we need to refine our ability to make orbital measurements and orbital calculations. Um, and I suppose being an, um, essentially a pessimistic individual, what worries me is if we develop the technology to make one kilometer class objects miss, um, you could easily come up with the technology to make one kilometer objects come down on somebody you don't like. Oh, that, that opens up another whole ball of water. <laughs> kind of worms. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, obviously we're going to need to do something about this because um, we were lucky in 1908 in Siberia. It came down in an almost unpopulated area. Right. And we've just been, and apparently in the 1940s a big thing came in over Russia, thank God, at a shallow angle and didn't hurt anybody. 
then this object just uh, you know a couple of weeks ago um, um, could have taken out a city very easily. And what about the one that hit uh, Jupiter? Was it Saturn or Jupiter? The, Le- the Levy. The Jupiter, the comet, the comet Levy. Levy, right? Yeah, Levy. Yeah. Well, what happens if that thing hit Earth? Uh, well, it's actually yeah, a comet is something that could be up to ten kilometers in diameter, a lump of dirty snow and slush and ice. Um, and of course, that was broken up by tidal forces. Where it made these great big black marks bigger than the Earth. Mm. Um, yeah, one of that, that train of, uh, of objects coming down on the Earth wouldn't have wouldn't have been good. No. Um, the, because it was ice, it well, obviously wasn't the same as being a lump of rock the size of a school bus, but nevertheless, it still could have been a problem. Um, these sort of things tend to explode about a, a few kilometers up, and uh, you know that sort of that, that sort of air burst happened over a Siberia in 1908, and that did a, that flattened trees for miles and rattled, rattled glasses on shelves in Paris. Mm. Yeah, that was, and now with the technology we have with with everybody's cell phones and. You know, we get to see the videos of these things as as opposed to not being able to hear or see these things. It makes it a lot more surreal. That was probably one of the most heavily observed meteoric impacts ever. Oh uh, yeah, it had to have been. That was <laughs> the, crazy. Yeah, the videos were just uh, the videos were just utterly amazing. I think I think uh, the one where the the the, the recent one in Russia where the guy was filming up and you could see the you could see the uh, I guess you call it a vapor trail or whatever the trail it left behind. Yeah. And then it took, you know, I guess because light travels faster than sound, it took a little bit for the sound wave to, you know, for the explosion to happen. And I think the words, oh, crap, was pretty much universal in Russian. I think everybody pretty much knew what that guy initially said, the first words out of his mouth. (laughs) Yeah, go along with that. (laughs) Unbelievable. That was was some crazy video, man. Hey, look, this was a really... um, a lot of fun. I really appreciate you doing this interview, man. Um, give me give me some closing thoughts. So, how do you feel about the future of, of, of our technology? Just kind of wrap it up a little bit, man. You feeling pretty good about things about what, what, what we're going to discover in the next twenty thirty well, years? Yes, yes, I am. I mean, actually, talking about technology, what amazed me is probably along with a lot of other guys years and years ago. Yes, I watched Captain James T. Kirk on the Starship Enterprise, mm-hmm. and when you look back at the futuristic technology that they had on the Enterprise in those days. It looks Stone Age now. Mm. I mean, we don't have the transporter, we don't have warp drive, although I think probably we're going to have warp drive one day. But all the other electro, the other technology on the Enterprise looked like stone axes. Um, things are advancing tremendously. Science is going to places that, uh, when I was reading science books on the bus going to school, I never ever thought this would happen. And mm. what is really, really fascinating, and I think an indication that stupendous things are happening, is that the sciences are joining together now. We, well, we're looking at the geology of Mars, the meteorology of Mars, mm-hmm. or the geology of the moon. You can buy a textbook of Martian geology now. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's an inch thick, and it's not full of Greenland stuff. This is real science in there. Um, the universe is opening up in a way that we would have never, ever I interviewed Jonathan Grinblatt a few times. He, he's one of the engineers, the avionics engineers that built the computer that's on Curiosity right now. Really, really good guy, um, and he's pretty excited about what they're finding, you know, on the surface of Mars. Um, yes. 
There's some really interesting things going on there, and, and, and there, you know, the, it's the guarantee now that there was water, running water, across the surface there at one point. Oh, that's right. Yes, I know. This is really, really amazing. There's no argument about it. I mean, you can see water courses, water-worn pebbles, right? Uh, water deposits. I mean, the two, the spirit and opportunity were mind blowers too. I mean, I was excited when Viking landed on Mars. Right. Uh, spirit and opportunity first started this process. Right. And the images that have been coming, just the images coming back from Curiosity have been amazing, where you can actually see rock strata on the hills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was grabbing some of these pictures from NASA and just sending them to a geologist friend of mine. He was sending back interpreting them, and he said, where is that? And I said, Mars. <laughs> Did he think it was Arizona, maybe? <laughs> That's right. Well, actually, um, there are parts of Arizona that do look a lot like that. Right. Uh, I, I was at Albuquerque in the winter once, and I thought if you photoshopped out the uh, photoshopped out the buildings, what was left looked like the surface of Mars to me. Exactly. Just amazing. And good stuff, man. Ken, thanks yeah. so much, man. Let's keep in touch, man. I'll get you back on. You know, when, when some more stuff, when you guys discover some more things, I'd love to have you back on. Okay, it's a deal. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, I no problem.